Good morning. Good morning. Good morning and good morning to you too. This is Law of the Land with Gloria J. Brown Marshall. I am so pleased to be here. Every single time I have the opportunity to talk with you, to be a part of our progress as we navigate this thing called life, it is a blessing. And I appreciate you. I appreciate it and I appreciate you. And so let's go forward. There are many things on our plate, but we can only get to so many during this time. And so we're going to talk about Ukraine, the second half of the show, but we're going to talk about Women's History Month. Of course, it's Women's History Month. And as we just ended Black History Month and the support that's given to people who are Black in history. And I think that's important. Dr. Carter G. Woodson said, this is not about, in that time called the Negro, this is not about the Negroes month or Negroes week. This is about the Black person in history who too often has been taken out of history. I want to always remind you that there is a queen, Queen Nzinga. And when those educators, if you have a chance to listen, and you're probably teaching right now, but friends of educators, parents, uh, relatives, significant others of educators, remind your teachers, if they are teaching about African enslavement, the European slave trade, the Europeans were the enslavers of many people. That slavery, one, did not begin in Africa. Give the example of the Israelis who were enslaved by the Egyptians or the Christians who were enslaved by the Romans. The, even the word slave comes from Slav, an Eastern European uh, derivative. So I want you to think of this beyond beginning the history of people of African descent with slavery. Think beyond this and consider Queen Nzinga. And this is where you could begin the history with the African kings and queens begin there. And then you can move into what happened over greed. Greed. Because racism was created to rationalize the greed of people wanting to have others work for them for free and take all the money so that they wouldn't have to pay them anything. They created laws to maintain this. And this is second, as I said, the first, um, know that enslavement did not begin in Africa, did not begin with Africans, and that the Europeans were the enslavers based on greed, but also Begin an African queen and king's history. You can use Queen Nzinga, N-Z-I-N-G-H-A, Nzinga. It's spelled many different ways, but Queen Nzinga. And if you begin with her and her life in 1663, she's recognized by the United Nations UNESCO. So on this, the first day of Women's History Month and the end yesterday of Black History Month, this way, you can be a part of the solution. You can be a part of moving forward, or as I say, decolonizing education. Decolonizing education. So 
One of the things I also like to say is that many people say, well, you know, this hurts the, the feelings of little children. Little white kids are now going to feel bad about themselves. It's like, um, so are their feelings more important than the feelings of children of color, first? Second, when did you finally stop believing in Santa Claus? Think about that for your children. When will your children stop believing in Santa Claus? So once you said as a parent, I'm tired of them believing that there is some stranger coming into my house, giving presents for my hard earned money. And then they have this joy. They say, thank you, Santa Claus, when it's actually the parents who are buying these gifts. I want you to think about that. Think about when you had to finally tell your child or your child found out for him or herself. There was no imaginary person coming through a chimney that you did not have delivering these presents in the middle of the night. That's what we need to do when it comes to American history. Stop trying to believe in Santa Claus. George Washington had enslaved people working for him. George Washington, the first president of the United States, under a law in Pennsylvania that stated after six months of residency in Pennsylvania, because the Quakers no longer wanted to have slavery as a part of their culture, and they ended slavery in Pennsylvania. But that meant that if somebody was there who was enslaved after six months, they became free. George Washington, the first president of the United States, when the capital of the country was located in Pennsylvania, on the 59th day, he would take all of his enslaved people back to Virginia, have them wait there for a week so that he would deny them their freedom and then turn around and bring them all back up again. Every 60 days, this man did this. So whatever Pennsylvania had as the number of days that would then trigger freedom, he would wait until the day before that period and then take his enslaved people out of the state. Oni Judd, O-N-E-Y, Oni Judd, was someone who was working, enslaved by, imprisoned by George Washington, the first president of the United States. And it's Oni Judd who escaped. Yes, she ran away. And this president of the United States sent bounty hunters to get her back. He so humiliated himself when she said, no, I'm not coming back. And he thought, well, you were working for Martha Washington. You're in the home of the president of the United States. Why would you need freedom? And yet she preferred her freedom as a poor person than living as an enslaved person with the United States president. These lessons you can teach for Women's History Month, for Black History Month, or for American history, because it all is. I want to now move to Katanji Brown Jackson, and our guest will be Pam Means, one of my favorites. And she's going to talk about Katanji Brown-Jackson. We're going to have a discussion about what this means to have the first African-American female nominee to the U.S. Supreme Court. But I also want to circle back to Brooklyn history. Yes, Jane Bolin, the first Black female judge in the United States, was in Brooklyn. Her name was Jane Bolin. And I'm reading this from my book, She Took Justice, The Black Woman, Law, and Power. 
1939, Jane Bolin, at age 31, became the first black woman judge in America. Bolin wore a crisp cotton dress when she raised her right hand that hot day, July 22nd, 1939, to be sworn in by New York City Mayor Fiorella LaGuardia to preside over family court. Jane Matilda Bolin spent much of her education being the only black woman in the classroom. She was the first black woman to graduate from Yale Law School. Bolin was the first black woman to join the New York City Bar Association, as well as the first black woman to join the New York City Law Department. Jane Bolin was the daughter of attorney Gaius Bolin, born in Poughkeepsie on April 11, 1908. She spent 40 years on the bench until she was forced to retire at age 70. She found racism rampant in her hometown. She said Poughkeepsie is fascist to the extent of deluding itself that there is superiority among human beings by reason solely of color, race, or religion. Bolin died at age 98. She stayed in family court because there was no attraction in being a judge over cases about money. It was frustrating for her to once again be the one lone Black woman in her peer group. Quote, everyone else makes a fuss about it, but I don't think about it. I still don't, she said. I wasn't concerned about first, second, or last. My work was my primary concern. Bolin's life was explored in the book Daughter of the Empire State, The Life of Judge Jane Bolin, written by Jacqueline McLeod. It would be decades before there would be a Black woman judge in the Deep South, to become judge, the Black woman had to become an attorney. And that gender bias was also something that she faced on all sides. We're going to continue to think about the Black woman lawyer. Remember, the first Black woman lawyer was Charlotte Ray in 1872. 1872. She graduated from Howard Law School in Washington, D.C. This is a moment, a profile, a time you think about women in history. We'll be back after this musical break, and we'll talk with Pamela Means about Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson's nomination and her possible rise to this nation's highest court.
Yes, I am every woman. That was Shaka Khan. I know that got you up off of your seat. Shaka Khan, yes. And here we have one of my favorites, a guest attorney, Pamela Means in St. Louis, Missouri, who's joining us this morning. Good morning, Pam. Good morning. And how are you this bright morning? Women's Month. Happy International Women's Month. How about that, my sister? Yes, that is fantastic. And I want us to to know that that, uh, Pamela is not just a friend of mine. She is wise counsel to many organizations. The Michael Brown Family Foundation is one of them in St. Louis, um, Missouri. She's been a partner in, in many ways. She's a former president of the National Bar Association. That is this nation and the world's largest bar association um, founded um, by African-Americans when the American Bar Association did not allow Black members. And she's worked diligently and hard in social justice issues, as well as being a partner in a major law firm doing work around Real estate, really, Pamela? <laughs> <laughs> I know, isn't that isn't that a strange combination? <laughs> but you, but you know, one I do because I'm called to do it, and that's a part of who we are as African American lawyers. You know, uh, um, um, Charles Hamilton Houston said that a black lawyer can either be a social engineer or a parasite. Right. Part of me being yes. a social engineer is doing the work for my community. That's not necessarily just tied with that, which is my uh, area of expertise, because it's naturally my area of expertise because of where I sit in life and where my family sits in life and where my ancestors sit in life. I require to go down the road that is least traveled by, by many. And at this point, what we're looking at is a road that's been traveled by some relatively few generally, but for our community, um, the law is a very, uh, not just a lucrative path, but a path that offers opportunities. Law offers, offers opportunities in every aspect of life, but also we see in politics as a foundation to go forward in business. And there are many things that were offered by law. We know that our first Black female lawyer was in 1872, a graduate of Howard Law School, Charlotte Ray. And we were just talking about Jane Bolin, the first Black female judge in 1939. Constance Baker Motley in 1966 was appointed to the federal bench. And now she here we have Katanji Brown Jackson, a nominee for the nation's highest court. Let's talk about that for a moment. And, and when we talk about the appellate court, where she is now in the D.C. Circuit, we know that that has been a very small number, perhaps seven, eight Black women in, in the lifetime of the court who have been nominated and actually attained that, the first being Amalia Curse right here in the Second Circuit Court of Appeals. So what did, what came across your mind when you heard first, um, when um, then-candidate Biden said that he was going to um, nominate a Black woman to the nation's highest court? The thing that immediately came across my mind is solidified my decision to change my party from independent to Democrat and to vote for him in the primary because he had just declared, because the vote had not reached the Illinois area yet, it had solidified my decision to vote for him in the primary because he decided to do and, and affirmed that he would do something 
and make history in doing it and putting a first African-American on the court. Because, Gloria, I remember when we made this request of Barack Obama, um, when he had an open seat and black women begged him to put a black woman on the seat. And he sent Valerie Jarrett to a group of black women, women and told us it wasn't our time. Biden actually said it was our time. And that, for me, was enough. It should have taken him over the top. It did for me. And that was the moment that solidified my vote for him in a primary vote, because I don't vote in the Democratic primary because I'm an independent. But I crossed over to vote for him in the primary. And, and, and this is what I think is so important for us to understand. So many people have said, oh, black people just follow another black candidate as though we're not thinking. We don't have critical thinking skills that we're not discerning for whom we want to support and why. There are reasons why people of African descent, just like any other voter, decide, choose, look at a particular candidate and decide we're going to then pull the lever for that particular candidate. And so you're showing the decision making process that goes into this and the fact that we many of us were disappointed by um, Barack Obama's failure as president of the United States to hear some of the wishes from from African-American community and this was one of them this was and I'm glad you said that Gloria this was one of them Uh, it was many you know if we don't look at his presidency in a genuine way how are we any different from those people that blindly follow Trump I don't see a difference, and I think that we do a disservice, and we did a disservice to ourselves by not challenging him more and demanding more of him, and we lost some ground. And if we failed to acknowledge and admit that, we gained some ground. But if we don't acknowledge that, uh, um, Gloria, then we are deceiving ourselves. So it it weighed upon me heavily, and it, it, it solidified for me. That solidified for me my vote. I vote my interest, Gloria, and I vote the interest of my Mm -hmm. people. And so people have to prove to me that their agenda is aligned with what is in the best interest of people that look like me and people that are situated like I was growing up, going through law school, going to undergraduate school, and where I sit now. Every spectrum of where we find African-American and people of African descent at. Yes. And the other part, I think that's that's very crucial. And thank you so much for saying that, is that when we get to these nominees, not all of these, it's like this amorphous black female person and everyone has the same characteristics. Uh, We are actually looking at the the possibilities at that time last week when we had um, Jay Michelle Childs from South Carolina, district court Mm -hmm. judge. We had Leandra Kruger on the high court of California. And um, at that time, um, Judge Katanji Brown Jackson was also a possibility. We were looking at these three women. The list had many, and there are many. I don't think the, the, the country or the world really knows how much of diversity and the deep um, qualifications that are out there among Black female lawyers. Why don't you talk about that a little bit, having been um, the president of the National Bar Association? You would be surprised. You never get your information from Ted Cruz who said that Joe Biden made a mistake when he decided to actually uh, nominate a black woman because we're only 6% of this population and he's leaving out 94%. If you look at the work 
and the history of African-American women and the grounds that we have gained without receiving the glory, Gloria, that we have, the stripes we have made in law when we often are the last to be hired, the last to be promoted, sometimes the first to be fired, the last to receive a promotion. Everybody's neck is on our back, but somehow we rise. Like Maya Angelou said, you can write me down in history with your bitter, twisted lies, but like dust till I rise, that's us. And black women across this spectrum, if you look, and I agree with you that there were many phenomenal women that were that were viewed and that people put on the table um, that were very competent. But I will be honest with you, Gloria, I would not have been satisfied if, if the president would have followed Congressman Clyburn's recommendation and put on the court Michelle Child. I would not have been satisfied. And why is that? I look at her record. I look at her record on 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 sentencing and criminal justice. I look at her record on her conservative record on issues of uh, labor and, and labor rights. I look at her record, and what I was looking for is someone who was in the tradition of Thurgood Marshall when it came to being a social engineer, knowing how to take the law and transform the law and make it fit for justice to happen, regardless of a person's color, skin, or gender. I also was looking for somebody who would be who would be as progressive as a Ruth Bader Ginsburg, someone who would take a dissent and turn that dissent into a possible law or make it a pathway for how we change the law to help. I like it that when I looked at Kataji Brown's experience, this is a woman who was grounded in constitutional law, not just grounded in it. Her rulings were well-reasoned. When you look at some of the opinions that she assisted Judge Breyer in helping to put together, when you look at some of that, when you look at the fact she was a prosecutor, I mean, not many people go from Harvard undergrad, Harvard Law School, to becoming a prosecutor. You mean a public defender? I mean, I'm sorry, a public defender. Yes. And and thank you for correcting me on that, because most of us become prosecutors. We don't become public defenders. There's not a large number of us that become public, because in the public sphere, you have the prosecutor and the public defender, and the public defenders are the least funded. It's the lawyers that somebody get when you can't afford another lawyer in the criminal justice system. That's what she did. She also said she had individuals that were in law enforcement in her family, her brother, her uncle, her cousin. But she also had an uncle that was a part of the drug deal. So you know what this told me about her? Her life experiences gave her a balance of understanding how, the, understanding how it is justice should be administered and what justice looked like. I was afraid of child's record. It was very conservative. I wasn't afraid of her because Lindsey Graham was going to support her. I wasn't afraid of her because the other congressmen, Republican congressmen, because I was afraid of her record. And I was afraid that with the court leading the way it is, I didn't need a justice that was on the fence of justice or that I would be afraid was on the fence of justice. And that's how I felt. So as we go forward and we know that the Constitution gives the president the power to uh, nominate, but... It is with the advice and consent of the Senate that this nominee goes forward on a vote. We know that back in the time of Barack Obama, who was looking to fill the seat of the late um, um, Scalia, that uh, Merrick Garland did not even receive 
the support to allow his nomination to go to the Senate floor for the hearing and the vote. And so now what we have is a, a balance 50-50 with the vice president, Kamala Harris, voting as under the Constitution, it, sa- it states that she has that power to do, to break any tie. What kind of questions do you think will then be you know, we know that Ted Cruz and others have said this is an affirmative action hire. So having um, Harvard undergrad graduating magna cum laude from Harvard Law School, clerking for Justice Breyer and having all of this experience somehow is not good enough. But um, what, what do you think will be her downfall as far as the Republican support that, you know, they're not planning to support her probably, but this whole idea of this public defender background don't you think that might be the weakness they see in her candidacy and that that might be what they end up using against her? I think that's what they will try to use against her. I think they will try to use that against her. And I think they will try to say that uh, she's that she is um, 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 a left leaning candidate. But here's the beautiful thing about why she's so well qualified. Why have you seen a candidate that has the civil rights credentials that have the working trial experience that she has, that has the bench experience she has, that is endorsed by the the, 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 the police union. You don't see that. The Federation of Police have endorsed her and say they believe she's well qualified to be in this position. You've never seen that kind of before. I was stunned and amazed when I heard that. But I'm going to tell you this. We're, we're at a different time, as you stated, than Mayor Garland. You know, for those of you that don't know, the Senate process is really a gentleman's process in this. It's not a lot of rules that govern, you know, how they do the Senate confirmation. What I found out when I was trying to push for two black women that were sitting on the sidelines during Barack Obama's nomination, one out of South Carolina, one out of North Carolina, who couldn't even get a hearing at the committee level when it was being chaired by a Democrat, was because they have these things that are called blue slips. And they wouldn't have a hearing unless the senators from your state turned in the blue slips. So those two senators from South Carolina wouldn't turn in their blue slips. And the two Republican senators from North Carolina wouldn't turn in their blue slips. But it wasn't, it wasn't a law. It wasn't even a rule. It was a gentleman's handshake of whether you turn it in. I don't believe that the chair, Dick Durbin, is going to allow that to happen this time, that if the blue slips are not turned in, that they will not proceed with the nomination because there's two senators from Florida that would have to turn in those blue slips. I don't think he's going to do that. I don't think he's going to do that. Here's what I, I'm going to say this on your air so people hear it. I said it on my other show on Wednesday night. I pray that no Republican votes for her. I pray that no Republican votes because you know why? I want history to be made, and I want Vice President Kamala Harris to come to the floor of the Senate and to break a tie and to put in the seat the first the first vice president, African-American vice president, to put in the seat the first African-American woman to sit on the Supreme Court. Gloria, wouldn't that be glorious during Women's History Month for her to be nominated during Black History Month, to be confirmed during Women's History Month by a vote of a black woman sitting at the top of the head of the Senate? 
that would be beautiful. But I don't disagree with you that I think they will attack her public defender record. I think they will attack some law review articles that she wrote. They will say she's too soft and she's left-leaning on issues of criminal justice reform, that she's going to be an activist judge as opposed to being a judge that issues justice. None of her rulings signify that. And in fact, when Lindsey Graham comes out and say this, we ought to give him an hypocrisy act because he just confirmed this woman and voted for her less than a year and a half ago to put her on the Court of Appeals. So, Lindsey Graham, what changed between now and then? Nothing changed except for the seat that she's seeking right now. And the, and the seat of power. And the, and the fact that even as a federal court a district judge or a, a, an Article Three judge, a, a appellate court judge, we know that on the federal court they sit for life, but... Here is the power of five people of the nine. Five can make the law of the land. I think the difference is also is the fact that when Donald Trump actually had vetted for him the most conservative, those who would undermine Brown versus Board of Education, those who would undermine Roe versus Wade, those who would undermine um, the affirmative action, would undermine the um, the Voting Rights Act, those who they that was thought who were thought that would be conservative enough to be loyal to him and follow in lockstep what he wanted were the ones on the short list. And so we have um, Justice Amy Coney Barrett, who now presents as a person who belongs to a religious organization that believes in the superiority of men over women. Yes. And, and yet she is on this court. She's not seen as someone who's bringing her fundamentalist background to the court. She can say, oh, no, that background I have is, has nothing to do with the, my decision making. I want to also bring another um, point up, and this is um, the Neil Gorsuch, who's Justice Gorsuch, who's mother, Anne Gorsuch Burford, was head of the Environmental Protection Agency from 1981 to 1983, was known for so, being so bad at this as far as her loyalty to corporations and polluters that she was using the agency in the internal um, mechanism of the agency to strip it of its power, to allow corporations and, and polluters to get away with even more pollution, dismantling the hard work of the environmental agency. She's known for that. Her background, that's what she's known for. Neil Gorsuch's mother, who's on, Neil Gorsuch, who's on the U.S. Supreme Court, his mother is known for stripping yes. the Environmental Protection Agency. So then we take this next step. Before the court yesterday was the case of West Virginia versus the Environmental Protection Agency, in which Neil Gorsuch, Justice Gorsuch, will be one of the people voting on yes. whether or not to limit the powers of the Environmental Protection agency when it comes to protecting this country from pollutants. This is what we're talking about is the, you know, as you, you parked, talked before about the hypocrisy on the high court. When we talk about the fact that it was Chief Justice John Roberts as an attorney who came up with the scheme to gut the Voting Rights Act back when he was an attorney. And then he writes the opinion in Shelby County versus Holder yes. gutting the Voting Rights Act. 
in, in, in 2013. So when we, we look at this and we go, okay, is it because they already know how diabolical they can be in their own use of their nominees to undo progressive um, uh, case law from the past and put in place the conservative agenda they have in mind? Is that the reason why they are so conter- concerned about someone who is so well qualified as um, Judge Katanji Brown Jackson? You, you, you have just taught a whole history lesson and a whole lesson of how the right does it. Here's what we should understand. Conservatives do not care anything about whether you believe they are hypocrites, whether or not they're being hypocritical, or, or, you, or, or whether or not they're pushing forth any justice. They don't care. Let's be clear. That is so very love, true. Conservatives love, and they do it. Un- unashamedly, unabashedly, and they do it open and notorious. And and conservatives loved Donald Trump, not because he was crazy, not because he was bold and outspoken. They loved him because he turned over the selection of judges to the Federation, the Federalist Society. And the Federalist Society gave Donald Trump and every other Republican uh, president a list of those judges that were that were appropriate to them. They knew because they had homegrown those judges. They knew what they would do when they got to a Title III position, whether it was the district, the Court of Appeals, or the Supreme Court. They handpicked these individuals. And, and Donald Trump made no qualms about this. He shared his list with everybody before he was elected. And there's a large part of why he was elected. In the black community, we don't pay enough attention to the power of the president to appoint to appoint judges who are judges for life. And we have to start doing that. People said to me they didn't vote when Trump ran against Hillary Clinton because the president don't mean anything. That's incorrect and it's wrong. And now we know that. But you are exactly correct. They appoint activist judges all the time. And it's time for Democrats to get a backbone. It's time for progressives and liberals to get a backbone and to be unabashedful about pushing for justice and putting on the courts one, putting on the courts people that believe in administering justice, like Thurgood Marshall, like a Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and don't give a doggone about what people say on the right. Who cares what they say? Number two, the Democrats and the, and the conservatives and the progressives have to get a backbone about unpacking this Supreme Court. They have to get a backbone because what, what uh, uh, McConnell and Trump has done is they packed the Supreme Court. And let's be clear about that. They didn't give Obama his pick. They decided to rush through Amy Coney Barrett. They did that because they wanted to pack the court and they had, they had no reservations about it. And if they could hold Biden up with this nomination, if they could hold this nomination up to November, thinking that they're going to take over the Supreme Court, trust me when I tell you, they would, they would, Republicans would get in and she would never get confirmed. We have to be strong about as much administering justice as they are about putting their activists on the court to undo justice for all and to make sure that a white power structure stay in place. This is Law of the Land with Gloria J. Brown Marshall. We've been having this riveting conversation with Pamela Means. And Pamela Means is an experienced litigator, negotiator, and trusted advisor. She's an advocate. And as you see, she is a Black woman who's worthy of the name. I thank you so much, Pamela, 
means for joining us today to discuss this. And I hope you'll come back during this hearing process so we can better understand moment by moment, blow by blow, what we're watching through the nomination process of Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson to the nation's highest court. Thank you so much. And as a, as a partner at Thompson Coburn, as well as an activist on the side, thanks for joining me. Thank you, my sister. So blessed and so humbled to be on the airways with you, one of the dynamic women who should be honored every day during this month for the courageous work you're doing. Honored to be with you. Thank you. This is Law of the Land. We'll be right back after this musical break. And I want to hear about another topic that's on everyone's lips, of course. You know, Ukraine. If you have something you want to share, something that's on your heart, something that you believe should be heard, and this is the place. I'm going to give you the platform, the forum. Be respectful. Be respectful. But I do want to know what's on your heart and mind. I was devastated on February 24th when we saw the attacks against Ukraine by Russia or by Putin, because we know there are many people in Russia who don't support this unprovoked attack on Ukraine. We want to hear from you, 212-209-2877. Once again, that's 212-209-2877. We're opening our phone lines. We're talking about Ukraine 212-209-2877, 212-209-2877. We don't have a lot of time. We're only talking about Ukraine. 212-209-2877. We'll be back after this musical break. I want to hear from you about your feelings regarding this war, unprovoked attack on Ukraine. This has been Law of the Land with Gloria J. Brown Marshall. I have to leave you, but always remember, if it's at all possible, I'll see you on the radio.